Hello, my name is Dr. Wendy Slusser, and I'm excited to share with you the Seminole Healthy Campus Initiative Health Equity Seminar podcast series. This podcast will bring thought-provoking discussions around topics like food apartheid and what are the benefits of playing as an adult. This seminar series will explore how communities reduce health inequities by building empathy. Welcome to our first health equity seminar, where we discuss the role of play in building health equity. The discussion is stimulated by the documentary filmmaker Jamie Redford's Playing for Keeps that explores in an engaging 60 minutes the importance of play and downtime for all of us. Moderated by the Executive Director of UCLA's Counseling and Psychological Services, Dr. Nicole Green, this panel features neuropsychology, play, recreation, and hula hoop professionals and experts. Keep listening to find plenty of scientifically backed excuses to take a break and play. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for having me at this panel as part of this inaugural health equity seminar. Again, my name is Nicole Green, and I'm so honored to be able to moderate this panel. Particularly in this moment, I think a lot of questions will be, why talk about play right now? We're in the middle of a pandemic. There's lots of racial unrest. There's a very contentious election. And at the heart of it is a lot of question about equity. I want to take a moment just to recognize the relationship between health equity and racism and anti-racism that really at the heart of a lot of inequity around health has to do with inequity around race. And we can see this not only in the unfair burdens of oppression on folks of color that have impacts on health, both mental health and physical health. It also has to do with the psychological and social structures that continue to exacerbate the inequities related to financial inequities, educational inequities, community inequities that further exacerbate health inequities, and then make it difficult to access the care that's needed to sort of even out these inequities. So as we think about this, I really just want to hold in mind how play can really have an impact on health equity in the way that we think about empathy, in the way that we think about what play means, who has access to it, how do we give access to folks who need to play, who may be in very difficult circumstances, who need outlets, who need a relief from stress, and who need to be able to relate to each other, both children and adults and older adults that need to be able to relate to each other in this especially in this moment of COVID, that will help to create more health, hopefully, longer term. So it's my pleasure to introduce five panelists who have some expertise in this more than I do, to think about these questions about how do we think about play? How does this relate to health? How does this relate to then equity issues at the core of health and equity? I first would like to introduce Dr. Bob Builder, UCLA Chief of Psychology in the Health System. He's a clinical neuropsychologist and the director of the Center for the Neuroscience of Creativity, a researcher and thinks about the reward system in the brain. He is interested in how play impacts the brain and contributes to well-being. And I have the honor of working with him as a co-lead in our MindWell pod for the Jane and Terry Semmel Healthy Campus Initiative. Dr. Stuart Brown, who was featured in the documentary Playing for Keeps, is the founder of the National Institute for Play. Carolyn Cardenas, 
oncology nurse, is a hula hoop dancer also featured in the documentary, and a PhD student in psychology writing her dissertation on play and its effects on compassion fatigue among helping professionals. Miranda Kim is a UCLA undergraduate student and assistant commissioner of the Student Wellness Commission as part of our student government at UCLA. And finally, Elisa Terry is the associate director of fitness and wellness for UCLA Recreation. So welcome you all. I'm very excited to have this conversation really about play and its impact on our brains and our bodies and health. So I'm going to ask a number of questions, but certainly it always is fun to have a conversation about this. So I'm going to moderate, but I'm hoping this will be uh, definitely a, an interesting and fruitful conversation. I'm going to start with a question to Bob. What good is play for your brain and your well-being? And it would be great for you to maybe expand on how you come to being interested in the work of play and then answer the question about what is what good is play for your brain and your well-being? Thank you. Great. Thank you, Nicole. And it's a really great honor to be able to work with Nicole on the Healthy Campus Initiative and on well-being. And that's part of how I came to have an interest in play is, I mean, after a long career working in psychopathology, mental illness and related disorders of the brain, the Healthy Campus Initiative is really focused on trying to think about health and well-being and all the positive aspects of psychology. And I think play fits neatly into that area. And I've also been really lucky to be able to study creativity. And I think that's one of the key links uh, or how we can see the brain and its relationship to play and, and what good it does is that play is a form of brain activity and action that releases us from many of the inhibitions that we experience in our day-to-day -day life. If we think about anxiety, that involves a system in the brain that tells us to stop doing whatever we're doing so we can be alert and aware of all the bad things that could happen to us in the environment. Play is the opposite of that. It is the unstop system. It releases you to do the stuff that you might do if you didn't have to worry about all the bad things that might happen to you. So that's why I think play has as a prerequisite condition that we have the freedom and liberty to be able to play. Um, but once we're in that state, I think it exercises parts of our brain that otherwise often are tamped down uh, by the environment. So that's just you know one of the benefits. <laughs> Thank you. I think I want to add Dr. Stuart Brown into the conversation. I think when I think of play, I think about childhood and children playing. Can you talk about what good play is for both children and adults? Sure. It's embedded in our natures, whether we're newborns or in a dementia unit. And I'll start with an experience in Australia, going to, to a dementia unit and having individuals there tell the staff that what they enjoyed about play and the staff then bringing that play as best they could, whether it's bridge or putting a, a golf ball down the hall, and the need for medication to handle agitation and other restlessness that's an inevitable part of dementia was, as Bob said, the uh, brain somehow reacted positively, even though they were demented. And you can walk backwards from, from aged to almost to newborns and see the positive effects of the state of play whenever it is activated. So it's, it's an integral part of our nature and I think is as essential in many ways as sleep and dreams are. It's very different 
but there is a profile that we can find with severe play deprivation that is quite tragic, particularly when it's on, it happens to uh, uh, infect the lives of, of early developmentally kids who are vulnerable. So it's there all of our lives. It's, it's imp- appropriate at any age, and it is particularly uh, important in early development. Thank you. And I think just to add to that question, what I'm hearing you say across the lifespan, it's almost our nature to play. And when we inhibit the play, there's a way in which that has an impact. I'm curious about for either Bob or Stuart, what changes in the brain when we get to play throughout our lifespan? What positive impacts does it have? I think that among the positive roles that play has for us, I mean, it's really a critical element of being able to practice stuff that you need to do in other settings. So if you think about play across all different animal species, it's really a model for fighting without that bad consequences. So if you look at two kittens playing with each other and wrestling, you know, they're not trying to kill each other, but this is some some pretty critical practice before they go out into the real world or the game of chase. I've got a German shepherd. Thank God he's playing because he would tear me to shreds. Oh, there he is. He's barking right now. Maverick, stop that. (laughs) So I guess he heard what we're talking about. Uh, But anyhow, these things are are, are critical elements of of play that leads us to practice. Um, And we can think about other things like dancing. That is practice for sex, which is very important to our survival as a species. So all kinds of play give us an opportunity to um, engage in things that model other things in life, but without all the the life or death consequences. So I think that's a a critical role in the evolution of play. I'll jump in and talk about the natural glee that you see in children that identifies kind of what their play personality is. We all have some like object play, some like social play, some like games, uh, dancing, music. What is it that gets us into this state of play, which has positive effects on the brain. And when you see an individual released from the usual anxieties and and impediments of non-playing, you see optimism, you see empathy, you see cooperation, you see the ability to care for people you might otherwise not as an outgrowth of this state of play. So it it really works. Thank you. I think this leads to the question I have for Elisa. You are the director of well-being programs at UCLA. Clearly, UCLA devotes time and money and resources to us being able to have fitness. Can you talk about the relationship between fitness and play and what you do to to promote play in fitness? Because I think as adults, we learn you have to work out. But I don't know that we so easily think about it as play. So can you talk about the relationship between fitness and play and how you promote that in your programs? Yes, it saddens me when, you know, people associate negativity to movement. Um, And I think that they've attached to fitness some sort of goal or, uh, you know, something that maybe leads them into, uh, you know, disappointment or sadness. And so to try to uh, help people discover the natural joy of movement is why I enjoy being in recreation fitness, because we can really diversify ourselves and offer all different types of movement and offer it to everyone. And uh, so that's why, you know, I didn't go into corporate fitness because I really like the recreation philosophy that it's available to everyone. But just some ways that you can make fitness more fun is by obviously choosing a a movement that is enjoyable for your body. 
And then group sessions, working out in a group is a lot more fun or working out with a trainer, a lot more fun. It becomes more social. Um, adding music to fitness is, is great. A use of props and then also turning workouts into games. And there's all sorts of things that you can do to make working out like a game, you know, AMRAPs and EMOMs and, you know, all of these fitness lingos um, that can make it more game-like and then working out outdoors. That's fantastic. And then, you know, just creating opportunities for people to play and not have it seem like a workout. At UCLA, we created what's called Thursdays, which is just Parks and Rec. And, uh, you know, I've been a Parks and Rec leader. That was my first job when I was 16. And that's, that's all it was, was we threw a bunch of games out on the grass. And with no explanation, students came out on the quad and uh, were able to enjoy that and play. Just the way you're talking about it makes it seem more fun than just thinking about, I got to get this workout in. So I appreciate that. Um, I want to talk about how this applies to students because I know I work a lot with student mental health and there's a clear relationship between people working out and feeling good and then their mental health being positively impacted. But I hear students feeling like there's not enough time, there's so much burden. So I want to turn to Miranda, given what Elisa just said, what are your thoughts as a UCLA student? How do you make time or priority to play? Does it feel like it's something you can do? Thank you, Nicole. I definitely think that UCLA students and I mean students in general set really high standards for themselves in terms of performance and achievement. Um, and I think that's also an attitude that's super characteristic of modern life in general. Not students are impacted by this, but so is the rest of society. As a result, academic stress often coincides with things like sacrificing sleep or compromising the nutrition so that they can study and like they don't ever have enough time. So there are definitely many barriers that inhibit students from reaching their full health potential. So in order to play, we as students first need to give ourselves the permission to do so and to do something just for the simple joy of doing it, not because it has a pragmatic purpose or because it's admired by somebody else, but just so that we intrinsically enjoy and value it. Uh, so th this can be really anything for me. It's playing with my dogs, my cat, baking with my little sisters, gardening with my mom, just doing things that are within reach at home. And I think that one of the silver linings of this time is now I have a greater appreciation for these little, very simple things and activities in life. And I know a lot of other students are starting to find that as well. So I would even find joy in things like doing the dishes, which is normally a chore, but it gives me an opportunity to step away from the screen and do something that is completely unrelated to school and studying. So I do think that there are many barriers and there are tons of factors that inhibit us from enjoying play in our daily lives. But I also think there's a lot of opportunity to find play in the little things. Thank you. And I think that leads me to a question uh, to Caroline. Uh, in the documentary, you're clearly very passionate about hula hooping. I'm, you know, and it, it relates to Lisa talking about having props and then making fun, being outside. I can imagine with costumes, it makes it very playful. Can you talk about, given the hard work that you do as a nurse in oncology and in hospice, can you talk about how you sustain the feeling of joy in the play and how you sustain thinking, I got to go out and do the thing that I love and enjoy? Because I think sometimes, even though we love it, it's hard to reach for it when you feel like there are other things that are more pressing or you have a hard time getting motivated. What things do you do to keep the sustained joy and love for hula hooping? Thank you. So the practice of play, it's, it's as simple as that. 
you know, coming to your own practice, whatever it is that you define as your own personal play practice is a sacred practice and it speaks to you and it informs you in the experiential process. So that's what it does for me. What's really powerful about the experiential process of play, or as Dr. Stuart Brown has mentioned before, that play is a state of being, that it actually evokes our basic affect of joy. So Sylvan Tompkins in the 1940s actually discovered nine basic affects that are essential for our survival. And one of them is actually joy. And so joy is inherently rewarding. And what it does is it stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. um, And it actually stimulates that rest and relaxation that we need. And it helps to restore us. And so play is not up for justification and it's not up for explanation. It's a pull. It pulls on your heart. And there's something about it that Dr. Stuart Brown talked about with that state of glee. It's sacred. And it actually has us engage our own limitations and our own capabilities. So we come to discover something unique within ourselves. And it's essential. It's important practice. Something that when we are in the practice of play or when I'm hula hooping and I'm listening to a awesome song that is just making me want to jam out. (laughs) I am in a state of play (laughs) and I feel completely expansive and I I come into a, a feeling of flow and I feel alive. And that informs me both in that moment and also afterwards where I want to work hard and I want to be there for my patients and I want to come to them feeling that sense of joy within so that I can serve them in the way that they need. And I've come to find that my own personal play practice is filling me up with joy. It's evoking my joy and it's allowing me to come to their side and express my compassion and my empathy towards them in the experience that they're having. Thank you. That's beautiful. Especially for the younger folks who are out here uh, listening to this and watching the documentary. One of the things I'm struck by is a lot of it had to do with the physicality of play, getting outside, roller skating. I'm curious for those who feel like they're doing play by doing online play, games, gaming. Can you tell me from a brain perspective and then from more of a psychosocial perspective, the distinction distinction or the difference or anything you know about the changes in the brain in online play versus getting out there and getting dirty and physical play. I guess I'll start with Bob and Stuart. One thing I'll say is that despite how wonderful virtual worlds have become and all the advances in technology, it is not the same as the real thing. I've really annoyed my children because we go down for vacations to a little beach town and I'll see two kids next to each other on a bench in this little beach town and they'll be on their phones sitting next to each other. And so I embarrass my children by going up to these other kids and saying, hey, dude, do you realize that right next to you is a three-dimensional human being that you could be interacting with? It's like so high bandwidth, you wouldn't believe it. But This is a long-winded way of just saying that when we deprive ourselves of the embodiment of the action and all the physicality that involves not only our motor systems, our movement, but also our perceptual systems, and we exchange that for something that's necessarily constrained, both in action and perception, we're only using a fraction of the brain that we could be engaging 
in real play in the real physical world. So I think that, that that's depriving us of a lot and it's well worth it to get out. I mean, one of the challenges of the Zoom world is we're all sitting around staring at little two by one inch segments of humans and trying to focus and narrow our attention on that. That's also that narrowing of attention is associated with increasing anxiety. If you can broaden your attention, get out into the real world and let your gaze go wide and encompass the entire environment, you're going to reduce anxiety just in that act alone. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you. Dr. Brown? Well, you know, I, I think the uh, people do get into a state of play with screenplay, but I agree 100% with Bob and with Elisa that movement fills an empty heart. And it's really important to find a way to keep moving and to not be sedentary in the process of playing. But I think somehow the culture needs to embrace the fact that play is a public health survival necessity. And I don't think we see it as that because you don't die if you don't play. You may die, you, you may die depressively, but you don't die as if you don't sleep for three weeks, you're going to be dead. But you don't play for three weeks, you're just grouchy, depressed, and lousy to be around a toxic human being. So I think that somehow getting across, whether you're a, a overburdened UCLA student or a workaholic, you do need to find your own avenues, as Caroline so beautifully put it, uh, of joy and play within. And, and that that is as important as washing your hands or getting a good night's sleep or eating well. Thanks. Other thoughts I think about, especially in COVID time, and I think this is more for Miranda and Elisa and Caroline to think about, you know, we're in COVID, folks need to get out and play. The computer is right there. What would you say about trying to get folks to understand the benefits of getting outside and playing, particularly in this environment where it's particularly challenging to do so? Well, first, I do want to agree with all that was said by Dr. Builder and Dr. Brown. Um, I'm a dancer and that's like one of my favorite hobbies. So for me, I definitely value the ability to move and to listen to music and to do things that are active and physical instead of just playing a video game and just using my index fingers or my thumbs to engage with people. But I will say that during this time, a lot of student orgs are working towards more uh, team bonding activities and building community through virtual and online games. So games like Among Us and Codenames have become really popular in the past few months, which I believe kind of appeals to students because the team bonding aspect gives them that permission, that pragmatic reason to play. Because so many of us are very like type A students that want a reason to, have, to do everything. There needs to be a purpose behind it. So I do think that it's, it's valuable, but I don't think it equates to the benefits that come from physical play. For students, if they are able to, I would highly recommend um, that all my friends, when we connect, we get on FaceTime, but we don't look at the screen. We just take the time to go outside and to just you know enjoy the scenery, enjoy just look up at the sky and talk to each other, but not have to stare at the screen. Like Dr. Builder was saying, not have to focus on like a two inch square on our um, devices. Yeah, and I would just piggyback that, yeah, I would encourage, you know, 
to safely get outdoors when you can um, and, and do what you can safely. But if you can't, uh, we have a lot of virtual opportunities, live fitness opportunities and recreation opportunities, creative expression type of things at UCLA Recreation. And I love the fact that they are live so that you really can, you know, um, you have an appointment, you have a place to go. There are other people on the end of that. We're helping to create community and bring people together. So, you know, please check out our virtual fitness and recreation offerings online when you can't get outdoors because at least you can still be physical and you can get a little bit of that element of play. It's really important to be curious about what it is that you truly love. And even if you don't know what that is, to just keep coming to the question, what lights you up? What uh, opens up your heart? What brings you into a state of wonder and awe? right? It's a really quiet conversation that one has with oneself and having that own awareness and engaging in that curiosity. You might discover something you didn't know that you loved. And one of the things that I think that's really important for the public to understand is that uh, we are culturally conditioned that play is for children and not for adults. And there's a lot of uh, almost like a knee-jerk reaction of this need to justify or explain that we're going to go play, right? Because we live in a culture where we are, uh, it's a results-driven, we have to be productive, and everything we do has to yield some sort of result. And so giving each other um, encouragement and permission to just go out and play and do something that you love, is it roller skating? Is it hula hooping? Is it skateboarding? Whatever it is that just opens up your heart, do that, engage in it and let it inform you. Do it over time and see what happens. And you'll come to discover something really beautiful. Makes me think, you know, we didn't start with what is play, you know, because I'm hearing a lot of diverse definitions. It's it can be washing the dishes, but thinking about it as a mindfulness activity, just a moment to be with yourself. It can be out hula hooping and doing the thing that you love and enjoy. It can be part of your work, like it is with Elisa, but it's also part of your heart. And so Play, it sounds like, could be online. It's not just the physical piece of it. It's the bonding piece of it. It's the mindfulness piece of it. And it's the joy piece of it all together that make it feel like play from what I'm hearing. And I think this relates next to the question I think I hear, especially as a clinician of color, about what it means to be privileged enough to think about play. What it means to be, to have privilege to think I don't have to feel burdened or always in a struggle. You know, so I want to challenge us to think about what would it mean to think about making the concept of play more equitable? What would we need to do in order to make it seem, make it um, available that folks who are struggling also can play or at least validate that that's a real gap? Any thoughts about just the relationship between play and health equity? I have the thought that any child that's not allowed to play from within themselves is subject to abuse and that the society as a whole should identify that as risk for future mayhem down the line. And whether you're a person of color or impoverished or sick or disabled or, or otherwise, you need to play. And that play is a, you know, is, as I mentioned earlier, a public health necessity. And when little kids learn to play, uh, they're going to cooperate even if they have had very difficult, challenging 
circumstances. So it, it predicts a good life outcome having early play happen. There's one thing I would just add to that, and it harkens back to the earlier definitions of you, you can't play if you don't have freedom. There's a fundamental freedom. And we have a large segment of our population that is not free, that's living under systemic racism and oppression. That means they're not free and they're not safe. And so I think that if we can create spaces and a nation that is actually safe for people, safe for people to go out in their cars without feeling they're going to be threatened, without fear that they're going to be judged by others as being less than, these are the kinds of conditions that we need to create so that people will have the, the freedom and the feeling of safety to be able to play. And I think that not to do that is a, you know, a basic injustice, as a, a Stuart was saying. And I would like to add that we need to vote and we need to support people who are going to invest in our communities. Um, I'm old enough to have gone through Proposition 13, which devastated public recreation programs. And think, you know, it's it's time to really put the money um, into those programs again and into those facilities in all neighborhoods um, because recreation is the ultimate equalizer and we are in every community. Uh, we just need the funding to make spaces that are safe for people to go and play um, and to create green spaces as well. You bring up a really good point when you say, what is play? Play researchers over time, the classical ones and, you know, and the, and the current ones have actually made, you know, talked about the difficulty of defining play. It's very much similar to trying to define love. And so we can look at play through its properties. We can look at it through its characteristics. We can look at it through its elements and something that Dr. Stuart Brown came to discover were the seven properties of play. You know, you identified that play is purposeless. It's done for its own sake. It's voluntary. It's got an inherent attraction. It gives you freedom from time. It instigates a diminished consciousness of self. And it has improvisational potential and a continuation desire. It evokes joy. And it does give you that sense of freedom. But ultimately, what we need in order to be able to play is to feel safe. Just like when we're opening up our hearts to love someone, we need to feel safe. It's the same sort of quality. Beautiful. I love that because I think that that really speaks to why people, some people don't feel like they can play or particularly adults and particularly in certain circumstances that to be fully in the moment and not thinking about the next thing and to not be in that fight, flight or freeze and to be fully present. I think we would be remiss if we didn't sort of highlight how difficult that is if you do feel under threat or you do feel like you don't have the space or you do feel like safety is an issue. And I think part of our work is to highlight play in the way that people can play, but also think about the structures that allow for more the, the conditions of play as part of this work, which seems really important. So thank you for those answers. Um, I think the last question is just, I'd love to hear from each of you, what is your favorite way to play? And one takeaway for yourself or others about play. So I think I'll just go around the room. I'll, I'll go around the Zoom room and I'll start with Caroline. What's your favorite way to play? I think we might know a little bit, but maybe you'll surprise us. Surprise us. And then what's one takeaway that you have for yourself or others? Well, my favorite play is hula hooping or hoop dancing. And I also have an 18-month-old little girl mm -hmm. and I love to play with her. You know, her play is is magic. It's pristine. It's, it, it is not conditioned in any way. Um, and so one of the takeaways that I'd like to uh, add here is that play actually stimulates or it fosters the imagination. 
And the imagination is essential for us um, to be able to engage in the world and bring out our uniqueness. And and it's important, you know, and so that's what I'd like to leave here, that the imagination, as Einstein has said, is more important than knowledge. And play is a portal to engage with our imagination and actually feel a sense of aliveness. Thank you. Lisa, how about you? What's your favorite way to play and what's your takeaway? My problem is I like to play too much. It always has been. <laughs> um, but uh, since I'm here, yeah, I, I like it all. I, I love being in the water and uh, and surfing. But uh, the best thing is one of my friends and I, we have sports fest days. And we go and we play all the sports that we haven't played in a while. We go to the batting cages, we play tennis, and uh, go to the playgrounds and things like that. So sports fest days, I highly recommend. And then uh, I guess, you know, my, my uh, takeaway here is just something that I've always thought about. And that's, but I think that fitness and gyms kind of evolved in our society because at some point in our lives, it became not cool to knock on your neighbor's door and ask them if they want to go out and play. And so I want to make it cool again, you know, to knock on your neighbor's door and ask them to go out and play no matter how old you are, just play, you know, and have fun. So Thank you. Miranda, what about you? I'm curious as you as a student, what's your favorite way to play? Oh my gosh, so many ways to play. Um, If I had to pick one, it would be spending time with my sisters. I definitely feel like being on campus was an amazing experience, but I'm so grateful to be able to stay home and watch my sisters grow up. They're at the age where they're going through a lot of changes in their lives in middle school, high school. So I just love getting to spend time with them talk about the things that they're going through in school, the challenges they're facing, and then do activities with them and just, you know, do things that are just daily mundane things like doing chores or like hanging out with our dogs. Like that's, that's just the best time. So I think one takeaway I got from this panel was that play is purposeless in the sense that it doesn't have a pragmatic, like inherent reason. It's just for the joy of it. And I really loved how Dr. Builder and Dr. Brown and Caroline really emphasized the importance of having joy in play, that it's not about outcome, but it's about the experience itself. And I really hope that students will start to internalize that and make choices in their day-to-day lives that will allow them to experience that play. Thank you. Dr. Brown, I'm so interested to know what's your favorite way to play. Well, I'll tell you, this last 45 minutes has been joyful for me. I feel like I've added people to my play tribe, and I'm upbeat about it. It is grand to look back on the differences of being an infant player and an old man player. I find now that when my grandkids show up, I can't shut up about storytelling. So there are different forms of play that just sort of take one over when, uh, when you are aging or when life changes. But I like to hike, play tennis, bike, swim. The Carmel Beach, where I live 10 miles from, is an awesome nature preserve of play. Yesterday, I was on the beach, foggy, low tide. Two ravens flew overhead one locked on to the other, upside down, flying upside down, play in nature. It's, it's, it's there if you look for it. So there's a thank you for this opportunity. And thanks, Jamie, for making the film. And Dr. Builder, what's your favorite way to play? 
Yeah, so I really struggled with this one. I uh, I first thought it was going to be, you know, playing music and I was going to bring my electric bass. I'm a terrible musician, and uh, but I, it's fun. And then I realized you know, there are actually things that I enjoy that are, you know, more physical things. I really like being underwater a lot, um, which is maybe a little weird, but I just really love it. I, I feel really away from it all when I'm underwater. But then I think most of the time, really, what I like to do is play with the mind in interacting with other people. Um, and I realize that's what I do as a regular practice is I constantly try to see the lighter side or the other side of whatever is going on. And I know it's very annoying to those of you who have to be endure meetings with me because it's always off topic and, you know, but um, anyhow, that's, that's me. The, the takeaway is something that occurred to me, and it, it resonates with what Caroline was saying about this concept of flow. And uh, the person who sort of brought that concept alive for many of us is Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote one of the greatest books on creativity and then authored the book about flow. And um, what he said, he had some recommendations to people of how to find flow, which I think is very connected to play. And what he said is, every day you should try to surprise yourself and you should try to surprise somebody else. And I think if we can do that every day, um, we're all going to be uh, more joyful and have lives filled with play and, and have happier lives. Well, I'll just share my favorite way to play is with my girls. We love musicals, um, Hamilton, Mean Girls, Wicked, all of it. And we're just in the my kitchen, my living room, dancing to all the different musicals and the songs. That's super fun. So karaoke kind of thing. And what I realized watching the documentary was I love roller skating and I don't do it enough. So it's made me commit to one thing I'll take away is to find and invest in play if you can. So that's one thing that I'll take away and leave and just know that you can do play in all sorts of ways. And I know people have competitions and and uh, Apple Watch competitions and, you know, challenge each other to different things and play again with your mind as well. So I can hear the diversity and the things that bring people joy. And I hope that people find, especially through the documentary and through the life of Jamie Redford, just this opportunity to take the time to play and to keep it in our lives as part of our health, really. And for those that don't feel entitled to it, to be mindful of that and think about ways that we can make health and play more equitable. So with that, I think we are signing off and I appreciate all of your time and to Dr. Wendy Slesser who put this together and to Megan and Jessica to help facilitate and coordinate this. So enjoy. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this health equity seminar featured on our center's podcast. UCLA Live Well. To watch the full video of this seminar and for more information on our future health equity seminars, visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu. Today's podcast was brought to you by Semmel Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA. To stay up to date with our episodes, subscribe to UCLA Live Well on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a wonderful rest of your day and we hope you join us for our next episode as we explore new perspectives on health and well-being.